0: locked in to stop look and listen on myforecast.com. ladies and gentlemen thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of stop look and listen i'm your host Victoria Gardner now this week we have an artist an entrepreneur an activist and a survivor um, such an amazing story so powerful, the perseverance that that she's shown. Um, we have Miss Elizabeth mcconowitz Welcome to the show, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Did I get it right? Did I get the last name I correct?
1: Did. Okay, yeah, cool. Did. Good
0: job. All right, nice. Yeah. So I mean, like I said, you have an amazing journey that we're going to touch on: a story of survival and activism. Um, but first, like, give us a brief snapshot into your childhood. Um, you know, just talking about growing up and did you feel like you grew up in an environment that was conducive to success?
1: Um, well, I was adopted from birth and, you know, regardless if you have uh, a healthy, you know, adopted family or not, adoption comes with trauma because of the separation of family. And, um, you know, I had a really great, you know childhood like i had all my needs were met i was loved i was cared for we lived on a big old farm i had a horse like you know i wasn't rich but you know i i was well off and I, everything i wanted you know I, I got pretty much and um it wasn't you know until i was out on my own that you know i was dating some really abusive men where you know that's where my life you know kind of took a dark turn and, um, I, I didn't do drugs, you know, I, I'd smoke pot and drank beer. Like I didn't, I didn't, you know, mess with that other stuff. I watched my community, you know, fall apart from Oxycontin, you know, big pharma came right in the back door with the rural communities and Maine was hit really, really hard. And I watched so many people die. So many people turn to drugs and, you know, just, yeah, it never interested me, but you know, I, um, ended up getting assaulted to the point my skull was showing Mm -hmm. and I found out I was pregnant with my son that day and the brain damage was so bad I would you know have seizures and I'd go deaf and blind for moments at a time Uh and the doctors prescribed me opioids and at first I took them with the initial injury but once they sent me to the pain clinic and you know they were trying to put me on a regular dose you know constantly. I was like, I don't want to take this. Like I, it's addictive. I, you know, I'm pregnant. I don't want my baby to get addicted. They told me I was on too small of a dose. And if I refuse doctors, you know, advice that it would result in a call to child protective services. And, you know, I noticed, you know, I was now on state insurance, you know, and I noticed from when I was on my parents' private insurance, I was treated a lot differently you know, now I was, I was in this different class of people that, you know, I didn't even realize there was another class, you know, they want to teach us everybody's equal freedom and justice for all. And, you know, I lived in this, you know, bubble and this illusion of white supremacy my whole life. So I really didn't, you know, understand, you know, the way America it truly is. And, um, you know, I eventually went to a battered women's shelter and they turned me away with two beds open. They, said that my injuries were too extensive and that my situation put the other women in the shelter in danger. So, you know, drug dealers ended up, you know, helping me out, giving me place to stay. You know, I, I lost my apartment because of him and I made a deal with my father that um, if they wouldn't help me, I'd sign temporary guardianship over, you know, to him for my kids. Cause like I was, I couldn't even take care of him half the time anyway. I was, you know, un- unconscious on the ground, having seizures from this head injury. And so, you know, I really wasn't, you know, the safest caregiver for them at the time anyway. And once I did that, I lost my insurance. So I could no longer, you know, get medicated from the doctor. I was, you know, self-medicating on the streets. And, you know, I lost, you know, all my vouchers, all my public housing. And, um, so they, you know, once you lose that, you know, if you, if you lose custody of your kids or if you sign temporary guardianship over, you lose all of your public aid that you had. And, um, so, you know, I eventually caught charges in 2011 and I did seven months in the state, but then the feds picked it up in 2013, you know, for the exact same drugs, the exact same substance and bus that I already finished my state time for, you know, there's no such thing as double jeopardy, you know, with drug dealers, you know, the state can pick you up and then the feds can pick you up and you're going to go to jail for the, those the same bus twice, even if you c- cleaned your life up. And, you know, once I went to jail, I really saw the institutional abuse that was going on. Like, for instance, you know, my first week at Somerset County, I witnessed an entire pod of women get stripped out because they signed up for a razor and a male sergeant wanted a list of who shaved their vaginas and who didn't. Those that did were punished. Like, this is the PG stuff that goes on there. And, you know... it really opened my eyes to, you know, they're really actively committing genocide still in this country. Like before Trump filled up the ice camps with, you know, all the refugees. And, you know, you heard about those women getting sterilized against their will. I met women in prison who had been sterilized against their will. And by like the third or fourth girl, I realized not a single one of these women are white that this is happening to. Like, you don't hear this happening to white inmates. And now all of a sudden, years later, it's a great day for white lives with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Like, they, this is them trying to, you know, keep the white race, you know, at, at the biggest number. And, you know, it's just, it was really eye-opening. And I really couldn't, I really couldn't believe, you know, a lot of the stuff that I saw. I mean, for in, and another thing, I was in prison with all the female vets that had, you know, gotten thrown away by the military because they stood up to their rapists. You know, these are the women that are in prison. You know, 70% of women in America in prisons have some sort of sexual assault or domestic violence in their past. You know, that's what got me to prison. I, I had no plans on being a drug dealer. Like I was in college. I had plans, you know, and this is what happens. Your life gets, if people's basic needs aren't met, they become desperate and, you know, they become more likely to commit a crime that they would normally never commit. And, you know, we, America, makes up 25% of the global incarceration population. We're only 5% of the world. So, I mean, we have more people in prison than entire continents, and they want to gaslight us with land of the free, you know, freedom and justice for all. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's wondering, you know, why are there so many people in prison? Well, it's a free workforce. They have bypassed slavery laws, you know, with mass incarceration. And, you know, we made $5.25 a month working 40 hours a week. A hospital saves $350,000 a year contracting their linen to be washed by inmates instead of paying regular Americans a minimum wage. Not even a living wage, just a minimum wage. Like and over the pandemic before the pandemic started, we had 3 empty houses for every homeless man, woman, and child in America. Now we're at 29 empty properties for every homeless person they're criminalizing homelessness and like you can't even feed a homeless person in some cities without getting a fine or getting some sort of, you know, legal repercussion. This is, this is what they mean when they they say they're criminalizing homelessness and you know what they wanted. All these, um, prisons across America were taking out PPP loans to add on to their wing, to, to their prison so they could get more beds. And the corporations said, we will buy all the prisons as long as they stay at 90% full capacity. They are making money off of the suffering of the American people. And it's all about a free workforce. If they can round everybody up, all the homeless people, all the criminals, all the drug addicts, then, you know, they get a free workforce. These corporations don't even have to pay us, you know, a fair wage because they have so many inmates doing it for free. And you know this is what's really scary because they, this is you know this is the end game for them. All mm-hmm. All right, so 100%, the rich, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh huh. All right, so yeah, so and you kind of made it for there. So let's kind of let's go back and just um, review the fact that, um, like you mentioned, you were in a few abusive relationships. You um, had a couple. Yeah. Children, as a result of um, some injuries sustained in an abusive relationship, you got um, hooked on Viking. Like, in, um, yeah. yeah, then you tried to seek um, help at domestic violence shelter. Um, just yeah. talk about what, trans- what transpired from there and how did their response impact you?
1: Um, Well, at first they called me a liar, Um, they said, you're not crying, most women come in here and they're crying. And when I was eight months pregnant, um, my ex had pushed me around and I started crying and he held a knife up, like right up to my eye and said, one more tear rolls down your cheek and I'm going to cut your face off. So when someone's already put you in the hospital like and almost killed you, you're more inclined to believe what they say when they threaten you. And um so after that, I would just bottle my emotions up because, you know, he threatened me so bad over crying. You know, that was like, you know, wiring my brain to, you know, if you cry, you're gonna be in danger. You're gonna get your face cut off. So, you know, after that, like I kind of went into shell shock and, you know, completely disassociated. I had no emotion when I went in there. And, you know, I didn't realize I had a cry on cue for these people. Um but I went and I went, I got the police records and I got the hospital records and, you know, the cops that brought me to the hospital, you know, the last showdown with this piece of work, um, he came after me with a shotgun and got a high speed chase. and It was a whole big mess. Um, then they did a complete 180. They literally said that my injuries were too extensive and that it put the other women in the shelter in danger. (laughs) And that they had two beds. One of the girls that got the beds, the guy didn't even hit her. He kicked her car. And she lost her apartment. She was the same public housing as me. um, And she lost her apartment because she had been partying every night. And I lost it because of domestic violence. You know, because the cops showed up. And, you know, they kick you out if, you know, the cops show up. Even though it wasn't my fault, there was nothing I'd do about it. You know, I wasn't partying or, you know, doing any of that. But... Yeah, it was and I'm not saying, you know, breaking stuff isn't domestic violence because it absolutely is, but you know, in comparison to my situation where I would have been dead if I hadn't gone to the hospital, I mean Yeah. yeah <laughs> and I mean, they could have taken both of us. Two beds right. available. Like that's
0: Do you feel like uh, this country takes uh domestic violence seriously or or are they wait until it's too late um, to really do something?
1: I think it depends on who it is, you know, if you have a pretty white woman crying because her black boyfriend beat her up, then yeah, they're going to go after that guy and they're going to throw the book at him. But if you have, you know, some pastor who's beating the crap out of his wife, you know, they're going to do everything they can to protect him. The whole church is going to, you know, tell that woman she needs to submit more and she needs to, you know, do what he wants and please him and forgive him because that's what a good wife does. And. Yeah, we have a very misogynistic rape culture. You know, I had conservative women telling me, you don't want to get raped by cops, then don't go to prison. The attitude towards women in this country, you know, is that some women deserves to be abused. Some women deserve to get raped. You know, if they're a porn star, if they're a stripper, if, you know, they've been a drug addict, it doesn't matter what happens to them. It doesn't matter what abuse they go through. They should be grateful for the attention. That is how women are treated you know and we i mean my, i remember growing up and watching th- these men have online countdowns for when certain women would be you know legal to sleep with i mean and we wonder why it's so bad and why women are so objectified and you know dehumanized in in this culture
0: mhm so um, where did um, your kids go at the time like when you were um in and out of the shelter and um, out on the streets with the well, drug dealers, and eventually was, arrested.
1: Yeah. Um, well, right after my head injury, they started. You know, I had to bring my daughter to my father's house. You know, the majority of the time because I would literally go blind you know, and deaf for moments at a time. And then sometimes I'd wake up on the ground and not know how long I was out for, you know, and she was only 14 months old and she's running around and I'm going, I'm literally not conscious. Like I'm going to wake up to a tragedy. And that was like a really awful, you know, low point for me because there was nothing I could do about it. You know, it's not like I could take some med and have this brain damage go away or, you know, anything like that. And so my dad took her And, you know, we lived in the same building, so, you know, I could just go downstairs, you know, and see her whenever I wanted. But, you know, once um, I moved out of there and into public housing, um, my son was born. Like, I was, yeah, I was trying to survive, you know, that man. He choked me to the point my windpipe collapsed in on itself and the damage... You know, if, you know when you have a plastic tube and you you bend it, it's got that crease like you can straighten it back out, but it's got that weak point mm-hmm. where it'll fold in on itself. What my windpipe was doing. And like Dude. if I hiccuped or something, it would literally just shut in on itself because he choked me so bad. I mean, he used to strangle me with my curling iron cord, like all kinds of like sadistic stuff. And um like I was mentally like Like after him, the next guy that put his hands on me, he's the one that went to the hospital because I started snapping on people. And so like I was tough enough from all the trauma he put me through to handle myself in the streets. So like I started, you know, moving up the chain relatively quickly and, you know, yeah, I got involved with more and more dangerous people, you know, showing up on different law enforcement's radar, you know, and it was just Like, I, I, at the time, and I would disassociate and be like, this has got to be a movie. Like, this is not my life. Like, you know, running with bikers and, you know, crazy people and, like, all this stuff. Like, this is stuff you see in the movies. Like, this is not really happening to me. And it's like, the trauma, like, you don't realize the damage that it does to you, you know, until you can finally, you know, be in a place where you're safe and you can really process it.
0: Dr. Todd McLean provides periodontal and dental implant services in two convenient locations. They offer over a decade of experience treating patients and appointments can even be scheduled in the evenings, weekends, or early mornings. Give them a call in Chapel Hill at 919-537-9774 or Enduro at 919-484-8338 or visit them online at gumsandimplants.org. Did you feel like um, there was never a, a way to escape that environment or or did you feel like um, throwing in a towel at any point
1: yeah you know it, i always had like one foot in and one foot out like i just gotta get enough money to get an apartment and i just gotta do this one more flip one more flip and then i'll get my kids back and then i'll be done with this and you know, it was always that one more flip and, you know, it's so hard to, you know, even survive in today's society. You know, you work minimum wage and it's not gonna pay anything. And, you know, it's just, it was that always trying to get out and not being able to. And, you know, my, my PTSD was so bad. Like, I mean, I I felt like I was no good for my kids. Like Mm. I really would like you know, I get to the point where I'd be like, they're better off without me. And, you know, that's that disease, you know, lying to you and, you know, all that. But, you know, I I took a trauma the trauma program in prison and that kind of, you know, helped me a lot and I started doing art again in prison. So Yeah. I mean I had a little side hustle too in there. Uh But, you know, I really tried to like work on myself and not you know, slip back into, you know, toxic mentalities. Mm-hmm. You know, you can sit here and say you're the victim all you want to. But at the end of the day, eventually abuse is going to make you toxic to it. If you don't face that, then you're going to pass that trauma on. You know, women love to talk about the abusive men, but these abusive men all have one thing in common, a really toxic mother in their life that messed them up. So it's like we can either heal and, you know, stop the trauma or, you know, we can we can pass this on to our sons and create more misogynistic, abusive men.
0: Mm-hmm. So how long um, were you in the federal prison? And like, just share the story of when you got locked up. Um, yeah, it was.
1: 2013 and um i was the longest um my actual sentence was 37 months um Mm -hmm. i actually ended up going back for nine months on probation
0: okay um so i just talk about your support system inside the penitentiary and outside like um who did you turn to and what was you know the key to success while incarcerated
1: um, well, that depends. If you have an open case with the feds, you know, I didn't trust anybody. Like, they, the feds played some scary games, you know, with pe- sending people in trying to get information off of you. So, I mean, you really don't want to talk about your case. And, you know, it's a journey. You might find some cool people in there to, you know, help you pass the time and, you know, be a friend. But at the end of it, you know, you go in alone and you're going to, you know, do a, a at least some of your bed alone Mm -hmm. and, you know, you can't take people with you when, you know, you get sentenced and when you get transferred and all that. So, I mean, like, yeah, I have women in there that were like sisters and mothers and, you know, you you could always find a friend in there. And you know, that, that's, I think some people when they get out and, you know, they're just on probation and they're not trying to go out and party or they're not trying to relapse or they're not hanging out with anybody, they end up miss missing, you know, that connection to people. Uh And they don't necessarily want to go back to prison, but they miss the connection, you know, that they had with, you know, people, you know, you're going through, you're being oppressed together. So you end up trauma bonding, you know, to a certain extent, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you were speaking earlier about the high incarceration rate in this country. Uh, Let's give me your thoughts on prison reform and changes you would like to see made in the criminal justice system.
1: Um, Well, um, we in Maine, we just got a bill passed mandating all jails in Maine provide tampons and pads free of charge for women. And that is a problem. Women will literally make their own tampons being desperate and, you know, get themselves infections like they can afford to give us tampons and pads, you know. Um, And the other uh, bill that I'm working on um, is regarding the PREA complaints um, because the, these institutions get to conduct their own investigations. So they basically decide how it turns out, you know, whether it's justified or not. And when I filed a Priya complaint at Somerset County, they forced me to strip in front of cameras. I was at Alderson. When Alderson got the complaint back, they wouldn't even allow me to read it. They read it to me and then told me I couldn't have a copy of it. So when you get out, you only have 100 days to file a complaint against an institution, the first thing they ask you for is, where's the pre up complaint? You know, where's where's the um, outcry at the time? You know, did you follow the chain of command? It's like, well, yes, I did, but they wouldn't give me the paperwork. And by law, they have to, but there's no consequence if they don't. And this is the problem. So what I've been proposing with um, main State legislation, but it should be across the board, you know, across, you know, all 50 states, you know, that there's, you know, a financial, um like a financial consequence for every day they stole an inmate because Mm -hmm. you can't just not give people their paperwork. You know, this causes other problems too. You know, like I couldn't get my medical records. And you know, so that, you know, set things back with my doctors and my therapists. Like it's just another way for them to cover up their abuse. So I would really like to see, you know, institutions not being, not being the ones that conduct their own investigations and, you know, there being an actual consequence if they don't give people their paperwork.
0: Right. All right so, um, uh, you just
1: also, sp- they just... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, they need to stop abusing people while they're in there. You can't traumatize people and then expect them to be, you know, functioning members of society. And, you know, the other thing was that the reason why I went back, I was on $1,300 of psych meds that the prison had me on. When I got out, I had no way to pay for it. So now I'm spacing these psych meds out and, you know, spiraling and detoxing off these psych meds. Your heart can stop, you know, if you stop taking some of these things like lithium, which mm-hmm. I was on, and, you know, it's really dangerous to just, you know, have people on these, you know, high levels or high doses of these medications and then just have no way for them to get more. You know, you are asking for a tragedy to happen. And they're gonna go back to prison. They're gonna get blamed for whatever happened while they were on it, and then they're gonna go back to jail.
0: Uh huh. I mean, so you spoke to spoke about adjusting to life in prison, and then um, after your release, um, you know, the therapy sessions and detoxing from psych meds. Just talk about yeah. adjusting to life after prison.
1: Um. You know, it's like everything's brighter almost and everything's moving like super fast. But it's also like really scary and, you know, really overwhelming because, you know, the only high levels of stimulation you have in prison is chaos and violence and some sort of, you know, traumatic, you know, thing going on. So, you know, it makes normal stimulation completely overwhelming. Like when I went, uh, when I got out, And, you know, I went to Walmart, just all the stuff in the store, like I felt like I was going to have a heart attack because my brain wasn't used to, you know, having to, you know, look at all this different stuff, you know, compared to white walls, you know, your brain literally slows down from the lack of stimulation in jail. And so when you get out, it's, it's terrifying. It makes everything feel terrifying. Like people talking over each other would send me into a panic attack. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's just not you know, you're rewiring people's brains to do this. And, you know, in solitary, your brain protects itself. So it shuts down empathy. It shuts down, you know, emotional processing. So these are the reasons why people freak out when they get out because, you know, their brain is just, you know, completely overwhelmed and overstimulated.
0: Uh Uh-huh. All right, so I'm sure one of the calming influences to your adjustment back into the, back into the real world was art. Just tell me what art means to you.
1: Well, um, my mother would send me these books called Zentangle art, and it's like this meditative doodle art. And that really helped me ground myself, you know, and distract myself from, you know, the PTSD I was dealing with in jail. Um, but I also, I had one of the highest paying jobs in the prison. Um, I was paid $57 a month to paint murals on the wall. So, um, you know, and also I'd paint on cups for inmates and it was kind of like giving them a piece of their identity back. You know, they, they strip you of everything. They give you, they take your name and give you a number and you know, you're given the same clothes as everybody else and you just have no individuality in there. And so, you know, when I got out, um, I I kept on with the art and, you know, since Janet Mills had taken over and I was able to get health insurance and go to therapy and get mat treatment, you know, this time around and I was really able to stay sober because of that just that one policy change of getting health care and, you know, having the support I needed and not, you know, trying to self medicate on the street and deal with my trauma. You know, I had to deal with my trauma before I could deal with my addiction and actually stay clean. And, um, for those of you struggling out there, you got to get to the root of why you're doing it. Are you doing it because you're in chronic pain? Are you doing it because you, it's the only way you're happy. You know, you got to find out why you're getting high. And, um, yeah, I continued. I had some art shows uh, went after I got out during the pandemic, and I joined the Bangor Art Society and did some shows with them. And then I found a company called The Galleries from Canada, and they take your art and turn it into this environmentally friendly clothing brand. And it comes in plus sizes, so it's like really inclusive to everybody. And um, I got some stuff to show you. Okay. Um, yeah, like this is one of my bags. So I paint all these designs Mm -hmm. and, um, everything is really well-made. Like this is a really nice scarf for summer and it's just really pretty. And I was so happy, you know, with, with the sizing of these clothes, because, you know, a lot of brands, they size their stuff really small. And as women, we have like, we're told from birth, like we're, our worth is based on how skinny and pretty we are and a lot of brands will size their stuff really, really small. And I remember, you know, in high school, just going to the mall with my friends and watching, you know, my friends, you know, have eating disorders and body dysmorphia because some of these brands would size their clothes really small. And Mm -hmm. so this brand doesn't do that. Like I ordered it and you know, a small is actually like pretty big on me. And you know, um, it's not going to feed into that body dysmorphia. You know, I've never dealt with eating disorders, but you know, I've had other mental health issues. So, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of a weirdo. Like one day I'll be kind of like Gothic and like dark femme and the next be like butterflies and flowers. And so I'm kind of like all over the place, Right. but there's, right, so... there's definitely like something for everybody.
0: Okay. Well, tell, tell us where we can, for
1: everybody. On there.
0: tell us so, where we can find
1: yeah, it. Yep. Yeah, um, it's legalleries.com slash E N slash Elizabeth dot and you have to put my name, you know, slash Elizabeth and all that at the end, because if you just put legalleries, it'll take you to their main website and they have other artists that do what I do. So.
0: Mm-hmm. So like, um, you yeah, know, with bl- 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 everything that you've experienced, like how does that trickle down to your kids? Like, um, were they able to sort of avoid some of the the trappings of life that you encounter?
1: Um, you know, unfortunately, um, I did end up passing down some traumas to them, and that was really, you know, hard for me because you know you never want to be the cause of your kids' pain, but you know, just by default you know, my dad ended up adopting them when I was in prison. So, you know, they ended up getting, you know, that generational trauma. And my daughter ended up dating some not so nice boys. Um, And, but, you know, she came out of it so much stronger, you know, than I ever did. Like it kind of broke me for a while and she just kind of, you know, learned from it and stood up and was like, well, I know how to set boundaries now. (laughs) And, you know, she just was kind of like this little soldier with it, you know, pushing on. And I just love that about her. And, you know, they're both doing really good in school and everything. So, I mean, I'm really happy about that. I mean, I'm sad things didn't go the way, you know, I wanted them to. But, you know, they have a great life. Mm -hmm. And I'm still in it. So, I mean, when you're sitting in prison with women who don't even know where their children are and the state can't tell them because they've lost them in the foster care system, like you know, you really become grateful that, you know, at least you know where your kids are. You know, at least they're with family. They're not being passed around the foster system and, you know, profited off that way. Like the suffering of the American people is a trillion dollar industry. When they send us to prison, they, you know, they, they traffic our kids in the foster care system and they get all kinds of funding doing it.
0: Uh huh. All right. So, Elizabeth, what do you see when you look in a mirror?
1: Um, I see a woman who is tired of the political and dystopian nightmare, you know, we're dealing with in the United States. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited about life. Like I'm in a good place, and you know, I'm. I have a lot of good things going. Like I never thought, you know, I'd be responsible for, you know, getting bills passed and you know other other stuff like that, or talking to podcasters like you. You know, I never thought I'd be doing that, and you know, it's really you know cool what life has to offer. I mean, you can you can be upset that you broke a piece of pottery. Or, you know, you can take the pieces and make a beautiful mosaic with it. You know, it's it's you really your choice.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, so like uh, so would you change anything about your journey? You know, you know, getting from A to Z, because I think everything you're doing now, you know, is based on everything that you encounter from A to Y
1: right yeah i don't think i would know to fight for the things that i'm fighting for and you know yeah if i and no i couldn't change it because you know if i didn't go through that i wouldn't have my son and you know i love that little boy i I'd go through it all again for him you mm-hmm. know, no matter what and then you know i went through what i had to go through to see what i had to see and it you know opened my eyes to what i needed you know to Tell the world about apparently. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, what's next for you?
1: Um. Well, I am almost done editing my book. I wrote a book um, in depth about uh, prison and you know all the institutional abuse that I witnessed, all the racism I witnessed, um, and I really point out you know the corruption, like how it's one big money pit, and you know where the money's going and you know, things that, you know, how, literally how they treat you. And, you know, the psychological, you know, in my recovery, it's not about my crime because you can't write about that and profit off of it. But, um, you know, I really just want to like expose the system the best way I can and, um, keep getting my brand out there. I got it in a few stores, but I want to get it in, uh, um, like a chain retail store. So right. that's one of my goals too.
0: Okay. Well, feel free to plug anything that you need to plug. You can plug the clothing line again. Tell us where to find it. What do you have? Are Are there any plans on um, releasing any male clothing as well? Like, just tell us about that.
1: I have a couple masculine shirts. Uh huh. Yeah, I think I have like two masculine shirts, but yeah, um, there's some there's like a boxer print and they just put like sheets and, um, blankets on there too. So I got to get painting again. I've been so wrapped up in, uh, podcasting interviews and doing my book that like, I haven't really, um, painted much lately. Um, yeah, I also am creating an adult coloring book with the Zen Tangle art. Um, I was telling you guys about, um, yeah, and I'm putting like all the tips at that like help me cope with my trauma and you know what I learned about PTSD. So hopefully it helps some of you guys. Um my handles on social media are on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, but I never go on Twitter. Um they're the, the handles all the same. It's EPM underscore art underscore eleven eleven. And my clothing website is legalist.com Slash EN slash Elizabeth. And there are shirts, dresses, uh, pants, headbands, neck scowls, you know, neckties, all kinds of stuff. There's literally something for everybody on there. And it's environmentally friendly.
0: Okay. All right. So, Elizabeth, just um, leave us with a parting shot. You know, some powerful words uh, to motivate those that are feeling helpless.
1: Yes. Laughter makes the pain go down easier.
0: Okay. All right. Elizabeth Makotowicz, a survivor, an author, soon to be author, and an advocate for prison reform and an entrepreneur. You know, thank you for your story, Elizabeth. Thank you for your your perseverance and turning out into a positive.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, sure. And for stop looking, listen. I'm your host, Latroy Gardner. See you next week. Peace and blessings.